Everybody, welcome to episode 113 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today, we are speaking with Jane Fontana and Mark Fitzsimmons. They are a couple who live together in the Angeles National Forest, and their lifestyle by modern standards would be considered pretty unique. They spend a lot of time foraging for their own food and creating beverages and meals from all sorts of things they gather from their own natural environment. They are two people who I would consider very self-sufficient and extremely competent. And on top of this, they are also hikers, backpackers, canyoneers, and so much more than that. I got together with them one evening at their home in the National Forest, and we sat beneath a tree while it occasionally tossed down acorns, and we talked about a variety of topics. Everything from the realities, pros and cons, of living in a national forest, the world of mead competitions, the realm of mushrooms and everything they have to offer despite the fact that I do not like their taste, their style of backpacking, which sounds fantastic, a nightly rescue of Boy Scouts in their area, and a couple of unfortunate incidences where they discovered dead bodies. I'm Jane Fontana. I have a cabin in the forest, in the Angeles National Forest, and I'm a musician, composer, and I'm semi-retired. I'm Mark Fitzsimmons, married to Jane. When we met, I had a house in Reseda, which uh, I sold in 2020. I built a um, wood shop two miles from here on a property that used to have a house that burned down in the 2009 fire, the station fire. So I've moved my wood operation out here. I am an aerospace engineer, and now I'm retired. I'm just a woodworker and winemaker. All right, so now we're going to talk a little bit about where we are right now. As you mentioned, we're in the Angeles Forest. Tell us about how you came to be able to inhabit this and then also a second cabin in the area, right? Yeah. Because this is technically in the forest, right? Yeah. So this is grandfathered in. Right. Typically, people cannot buy property here, right? Right. So yeah, tell us about that. I was living in Hollywood, and I was just, the noise was driving me crazy. I had been looking for an affordable house to buy that was also not so urban. When my realtor sent me a picture of this place... I thought that maybe the Walmart next door was cropped out or something because it was kind of too great to believe. But I came out and it was fantastic. The water tasted really good. It's a permitted cabin, so I have to pay a lease to the Forest Service, which is very affordable. But I own the structure, and so I have to pay property taxes. The Forest Service is a little bit like an HOA, where there are a lot of conditions placed upon it. I think the most onerous one is that they can evacuate you, and a mandatory evacuation actually means you have to leave. Whereas if our other property is private land inside the National Forest, so that has different conditions where we we are actually the landowners, so we don't have to be under any kind of umbrella of the federal government. And this property here, since the government technically owns the property and you own the structure, 
Are you able to pass this on to other people, resell it, or do you not have those options? Yeah, you can resell it. It's part of an act from 1915. I think there was difficulty in what to do with these properties. Some of them, like mine, have historical significance. So they made a plan for people to enjoy them as part of the recreation of the forest. So so why live here? What's, what's better oh, about living here than living in Hollywood? It's amazing. <laughs> it's very quiet here. Right now, it's not as quiet because the woodpeckers are going crazy. It's very, very quiet, very, very dark, which is wonderful also. You know, it smells really good. The smells that come here are sage and bay laurel. We don't have like exhaust and sewer smells like the city does. I feel so much more calm with just being in nature. And because this cabin is situated sort of at the end of the lane, there's nobody in three different directions. There's no one for at least six miles. So we have all this wilderness to just go into which is really fun. We have a lot of wildlife that comes by. We see foxes almost every day. We see bears regularly. There's been a mountain lion walking around the last couple of weeks. Owls, woodpeckers, all kinds of animals. It's really fun. We'll get up in the morning and there might be eight or nine deer just sleeping outside the bedroom window in the backyard. (laughs) So are there any downsides to living over here? Well, there's a picnic area only a thousand feet (laughs) over there and it's noisy on Saturday and Sunday. And also there are religious revelers at night who speak in tongues and that can be pretty creepy and annoying. Didn't you say, didn't you tell me some story one time about how they were they had like a PA system set up or something and it was super loud and so you approached them about it and you were worried but then they turned out to be very very nice and accommodating. It's a regular thing. If they're a mile up the road or a mile the other direction we don't hear them but sometimes they pick a turnout that's directly across from the cabin and uh, that's when we talk to them and ask them if they can move. So sometimes they're accommodating, sometimes not, but these hills you can see up there, people are cutting trails to the top of the mounds and building sort of outdoor churches and leaving a bunch of plastic furniture. They'll go every Monday, Wednesday, Saturday night sometimes all night long. They've got amplified preachers and people blowing horns and making noise all night long. Have you considered maybe starting your own cult to compete (laughs) with them from the other side? Well, I did notice one of my neighbors over in Trailunga, which is another little community just uh, downstream, he set up his own PA and was saying, facing one of the groups saying, God is dead. Yeah, like maybe you could crank up Black Sabbath or something yeah. whenever and just yeah, And then the preacher direction. was responding, don't listen to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other things about living here is it is more work. You know, you just, you have to think about grocery shopping when you have to go into town for other reasons, because it's a long way if you forgot something. Also, you know, we have to maintain our own water system and we're on our own in a lot of ways. Agencies don't come to the rescue. During the station fire, you know, they told us they weren't going to protect our home, things like that. And fire danger is high. It's Mm -hmm. a problem here. So we've started a neighborhood fire safe council to try to help educate 
the public and learn about different resources that and maybe have a more collective voice so we do get attention when there's a disaster. Because this is technically in public land, do you run into any issues with people? People who don't respect your property because they think they're in a wilderness area and they can go wherever they want? Or yeah, do certainly. They want? Yeah. The worst is when people park next to our mailbox, have a snack, and leave a bunch of litter on the road. And that happens often. This house, before I ever bought it or anything, I I would come out here and do some hiking. And I never came up this way because the driveway looks ominous. We don't get very many people that come up here. Uh, they're, they're mostly down closer to the picnic area. And I have met a number of regulars from the picnic area who are just the nicest people. They really are wonderful and they, they want to just enjoy the wilderness. So most of the people here are generational families, you know, that have grandmas and and grandkids and everybody in between. So they're not so, it's not ruffians or anything. Mm-hmm. So we really don't get too many people like that. I mean, and I guess the good thing is if you were bored, say, on a Saturday morning, you could just walk right down to the trail and make new friends pretty easily, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people get lost and they can't find the Grizzly Flat Trail because the signage isn't very good. So we're trying to figure out how we can improve. A lot of trailheads will have a map that says, you are here, here's the trail, and that doesn't exist here. So I think we're going to start by creating such a map and then uh, talk to the Forest Service about posting it, make sure that people can find the trail. You're also very close to a creek and there were record rains this past winter. So how did all that water moving through this area affect this area? Because like you said, you've got to worry about fires in the past, but this past year you had to worry about water. Well, they had uh, a number of storms a week apart or a week and a half apart. And so the people in control of the dam were letting water out to lower the water level so that they could control that flow. Because once the dam overflows, it's not in control anymore. So during those periods of time, uh, we got the phone number of the people in charge of that dam and talked to them, telling them when the water flow was flowing over the bridge down there, which would prevent us from being able to get out. And they were happy for that information because they, they didn't really know exactly how many cubic feet per second they could let out without incapacitating people. They were so, really receptive yeah, was, and you could good. get them on the phone and stuff. But we did have... One night we were in bed and somebody knocked on our door at midnight and that was unusual here. It's unusual for anyone to knock on the door, but at midnight is highly unusual. And uh, it ended up being the Montrose Search and Rescue. And they were asking us if we knew a way to get across the river. Usually the Search and Rescue doesn't want help from civilians. I think they don't want to endanger other people and all that. They have a lot of rules about that. Right. You could become a liability. Right. Yeah. But they came and asked us, and Mark started to describe a way, or at least around the first crossing. And I thought, it's dark. It's They're not going to find any of those landmarks that I told them about. Yeah. So. so I just started putting on my clothes and boots and said, I'll show you. And we went down there together and showed them how to get across the first, you know, had to completely miss the first crossing. 
And then we just went ahead and crossed the second crossing, which was crotch deep and rushing. And then the third crossing... Was also crotch deep and rushing. Yeah. And then but the, we knew the places to go, so they were really grateful for that. Yeah. We knew the widest spots and mm-hmm. how to rejoin the trail so you don't just have to make it a bushwhack all the way. And, and You know, a lot of places, if you cross and you're in the wrong place, you can end up in a big bunch of blackberry yeah, yeah. thorns, yeah. which I've are terrible. Ex- I've done exactly that before. Yeah. 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 And And we ended up getting to the Boy Scouts a lot faster than I think they ever would have reached them. And then they rigged a zip line and and we stayed and guided the Boy Scouts back and and everything worked out. We got back at three in the morning and just went to bed. (laughs) It was actually really fun. Those Boy Scouts were really game. They were... Well, they got a free zip line yeah. out of it yeah. all of a sudden. They were probably pretty excited. And they were 11, so it was, you know, 11-year-old boys. Some of them are, you know, weigh 60 pounds, and some of them are like 6'1 already. Oh, some of them you could just toss over the roof. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they were all so nice, and all it was the time of their lives. But there are a few people that know that we know the trails really well. One of them is the sheriff uh, representative for search and rescue, and another one is the captain of the fire station across the river here, the Forest Service. Because we've done other... Well, we did a recovery, a couple of things like that. Just on our own, we found someone who had passed away. Yeah, you should tell this story. This is a infamous story (laughs) of yours that I have heard many years ago, and I think it is a very interesting story. Well, I remember it was Father's Day because we were at Jane's father's house. That weekend was the first weekend the forest had been opened to the public since the station fire. And it was three years after the station fire. So this was 2012, 2012. something like 11 o'clock at night. We drove on the way home. We could see there was a car in the picnic area, which was so unusual. It's unusual in in a normal time, but uh, because we hadn't seen cars in the picnic area for three years, it was extra unusual. We thought, oh, there's somebody who is so happy that the forest is open, they're probably camping. So we didn't really think any any more about it until a few days later. car was still there and suddenly there were so many fire trucks and law enforcement in the picnic area. I went down to see what they were doing and they said that that car, there was a missing person and and it was a hiker. And I immediately said to the to the fire guy, I go, well, I wonder if they went up to Wes Vasquez or, or maybe Vasquez. Fire guys didn't really know what I was talking about. A lot of times they don't know all the little intricacies of, you know, what we would know as canyoneers and stuff. But Vasquez Creek is a, a named creek just half a mile from here that and, a lot of canyoneers like to do uh, rappel down because it's a beautiful slot canyon. And it's really the only place that we know of around here that a casual hiker could get lost and get stuck in a slot canyon and be unable to get out. But then they had dogs the cadaver dogs and search and rescue dogs both and they were going the opposite direction of that notion we just kind of didn't keep thinking that that's where he was in the meantime mark and i and other members of the canyoneering community like baron haas and matt maxson would come out every afternoon and we'd go looking for him we did this for two weeks yeah that's right it was a really unusual father's day it was a hundred more than 100 degrees which is kind of rare for june and we thought, well, maybe he just had a heart attack because it was so hot. 
And so we started looking for places where a person might have hid to get in the shade or was going to the bathroom and just succumbed to the heat. And so we went every place as we could. We found a lot of places that deer slept in, but no person. Yeah, and the search and rescue was here every day, too, looking, but there was no answer. And finally, we just decided, let's go just run that canyon, because even though it doesn't make any sense with the dogs, we'll run the canyon. And it was still very hot. Getting from here to Grizzly Flat was really brushed room, like impossible Cenothus and stuff. And I said, that guy didn't come this way. He would have turned around. I would turn around. <laughs> right. Uh, so. and, but I, I said to Jane and our friend Andrew that was with us, I know it's horrible right now, but we're actually really close to the canyon. And it's 100 degrees here, but once we get in the canyon, it's going to be 70 degrees and wet. So it's probably better if we just push through this terrible brush and do the canyon and we'll be a lot more happy and so we, we did that and we started and the canyon was beautiful there's a weeping wall there's all the and which which canyon is this? vasquez vasquez creek it's it's really, really wonderful there's one hydraulic in it there's just a lot and we did the first rappel and there was a funny footprint that looked like a stocking foot like somebody without a shoe on. Right, not which could foot. be a bear because we've followed yeah. bear tracks and they look like a short human foot. So but, we couldn't tell if it was yeah, a bear we or were human. nervous and then I found a hat and thought, eh. It's not a bear hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Andrew went down like a funny down climb and said, oh, there's a backpack. And then we got a little nervous and then a few minutes later there was a body and that was pretty awful. So we... This is before, you know, we didn't have a beacon or anything mm -hmm. at that time. And we uh, just hiked back here to the cabin as fast as possible and called called it in. And then, um, and that's how we know more the Sierra Madre search and rescue people, because they wanted to know all kinds of things about that. Based on this story, because I have not heard this one before, I do not think, I think you have two... Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I was with Johanna Turner, and we had gone on a really early morning. Yeah, this is the one. I January uh, hike with her dog. <laughs> her dog, who was a beagle, just had to be on leash. We did this little hike into um, a canyon just downstream from here that's trailless. There were so many snags that the dog was getting held up by the leash situation so we decided we'd find another hike to do but while we were turning around there was a puddle of blood and it was unusual and yeah that's usually unusual <laughs> yeah and johanna was wondering if it could be like a cougar kill and she got really excited but then we saw more evidence of it as we were returning more more and more we also found a spot where there was unusual footprints and to me, it looked like there was somebody having a uh, fist fight, you know, because they were stepping up and stepping back and stepping up and stepping back. I said, well, maybe somebody hit somebody with a bottle and they just were dragging them back to get get them to help, you know, to rescue them after they'd done that. And it was just tempers flared or something. So Johanna and I just uh, were on our way out and some Department of Public Works, DPW, I guess, uh, came and told us um, that it wasn't really a safe place to park where we had parked because uh, there's a lot of break-ins and stuff. And I said, well, speaking of safety, and I, <laughs> I pointed out the blood 
to the guy. Then Johanna and I went on a, another hike somewhere else. When we returned, Johanna left and she called me right away on her way home and said, there are so many law enforcement people over where we were hiking. It's crazy. She said, I don't know what's happening. So I decided to call the sheriff and tell them what I saw. And they, it was so cold that the dogs couldn't mark any of the places because it was, it was freezing, actually. I guess there had been a woman who was missing and uh, she was the daughter of one of the fire chiefs in the area. So they were looking for her and thinking she might be there. But then that was it. I didn't hear anything about it. But an interesting side note about that woman who was missing, she had been missing since New Year's Eve. Yeah. And a helicopter turned to come over to this canyon to see if it was related. And I guess her family came here, too. En route, the helicopter actually found her car, which is over in Little Tonga. So it was sort of ironic that because of this blood, they found this other person who had been dead for a week. And then, kind of odd. anyway, uh, two weeks later, they... S- sounds like a lot of people die over yeah. there in this area. <laughs> two weeks later, they called me and said that they'd like to talk to me about it. They asked me to come to the scene, and I went over there and was walking around showing them some of the spots. And that's when I realized that what I thought were the fist fight footprints were actually somebody tamping down a grave and that the person was underneath there, which was pretty chilling. Yeah. Um, later, uh, they asked me to testify at the trial of the murderer. They caught the murderer. Uh, he was convicted. They said to me that if we had not found that evidence, that they never would have known. It would have just been a missing person forever. They had the the perpetrator in custody for credit card fraud with the credit cards of the deceased, but they didn't have any other notion, so it was just, they said it just never would have come. So just dumb luck that you just happened to be hiking through the area yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. at the right time. Yeah, and they killed him only about four hours before they were hiking. Yeah. So it was very, very I recent. Recall. Yeah. yeah, like, good thing you didn't decide to hike earlier yeah. in the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How was it testifying. The guy was kind of a terrifying guy, Mm -hmm. but it was a good experience. The family, after I testified, came and gave me hugs and was really, really thankful. The other law enforcement officials were also really thankful. Earlier this year, I was on a jury for a murder trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a unique experience to be in the room where all of that is occurring for multiple days, staring at a person who allegedly has killed another person yeah. and that person is staring at you yeah. <laughs> you do this every day and then you have to say whether or not that person should go to prison yeah mm-hmm. i was only yeah. allowed to be in the courtroom for my testimony right. i don't know why but but i did get to talk to like the cadaver dog lady and a few other people to find out more about how the they had progressed to find out who he was and how to caught him and and actually why they killed the victim. He was a really young guy, 23-year-old, and he had met some guy on Craigslist and got a room from that situation, and right after he moved in, he overheard a conversation about these guys embezzling money from the Boy Scouts, and they saw that he heard them, and they killed him for that reason. 
which is awful. But it's not all death and stuff out here. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, these stories have gotten progressive. So it started out with this happy story of rescuing, <laughs> rescuing children in the middle of the night. Then a guy dies seemingly from exposure. Then a murder, which led to the discovery of another murder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there was not a murder. That she that uh, one was not. She a actually murder. was okay. driving late at night and drove off a windy road in Little Tahunga Canyon. Yeah. That was not a murder. And they okay. also and found when they looked for the victim over there in Ibarra Canyon another body of one of our neighbor's sons who had been oh missing for three years, and they. They found he had fallen on a hike. He fell off a cliff. So that was also not a murder. So people die accidentally, too. It's very steep. I think John Muir said of San Gabriel Mountains that it is the most impenetrable range he'd ever been in. I also want to point out that how long have you lived in this area? 20 years. So we're talking about a murder and a few deaths within 20 years. Yeah. Uh-huh. Whereas the rest of us that live in the city, there's probably more than that going on every probably few weeks. Yeah. We just don't hear about right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. just aren't as many people out here. Right. So you hear about mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time, it's really peaceful and there's so much <laughs> wonderful stuff. We really love foraging and we find mushrooms and berries and all kinds of things to make delicious food with and yeah let's talk about that you two people are people i would describe as self-sufficient and uh, we try to be (laughs) for instance right now we have quesadillas that are made with gooseberries that you foraged Uh, when i showed up there are a bunch of different berry sodas and manzanita sodas and things that that you have all made from in there i know this guy builds all sorts of contraptions to destroy fruits and turn them into (laughs) alcoholic beverages (laughs) so so yeah tell us a little bit about oh yeah and then of course the mushrooms that you're both known for Uh, so yeah tell us a bit about your self-sufficiency and your foraging and how that all came about well we got married at lightning point in the angeles forest we had a kind of a big wedding for an outdoor camping wedding took a lot of planning because of all the planning that the wedding took we didn't really have time to plan our honeymoon and at our wedding we had one friend who said hey i'm gonna go foraging for mushrooms in montana next week you want to come i mentioned it to mark that that sounds like super fun thing and I was really surprised that Mark just said yes oh yeah because I had been um, interested in foraging for mushrooms for more than 10 years before I met you I think all the times I had been looking wasn't immediately after a rain and so it just wasn't the right conditions and I didn't know what to look for so I thought it was a really good opportunity to kind of learn from an expert who was picking for restaurants so doing a commercial pick operation so he knew what he was looking for and we would learn something about how to find mushrooms the common word about mushroom foraging right is if you're not careful you can kill yourself Right? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. It can be true. You're right. So, so it takes a lot of study of botany, of mushrooms, to understand what it is you're looking at. But once you become familiar with the terminology and physical descriptions of things, you start to figure out and become familiar with different species of mushrooms. When I was really little, my dad took me on the PCT. We did the first 500 miles. The first, the southern 500? Yeah. I uh, remember coming home from that experience and reading all about other people who backpack. And I read about this one guy who had found a morel for dinner and he was cooking it. And I said, someday, maybe I'll be able to 
figure out wild mushrooms and wouldn't that be fantastic? And this was probably when I was about nine years old. So I had always wondered, and I'd seen mushrooms, but it was pretty foreign to me, like what to look for. And I didn't have a way to begin. So going with this expert, we went morel hunting in a burn area outside of... Sorry, that was a <laughs> acorn. <laughs> the acorns dropped this time. This is almost constant yeah. during October. I assume, the, I assume the next time I come over here, those acorns will be have turned into a tasty pie. Yeah, maybe. So we went and we collected morels. In, we found many, many morels in that burn. And it was so fun. And then we took them on the rest of our honeymoon as we went through Glacier National Park. And we cooked every night with some outrageous, fun, new thing. One <laughs> I remember that a couple of days after we were still cleaning them, we had this paper bag. And so we were going through Yellowstone National Park and we sat down waiting for Old Faithful to come up or one near there. And I ran into a director at the company I was working for at the time. And he was sitting for the, waiting for this same geyser to go. And so we were just cleaning mushrooms, talking to him. It was pretty funny. Also, we were, when we went from Yellowstone to Glacier, I said, man, I wish I could find a chicken because I would love to do like a stuffed bird with morels and I'd like to do cornbread and stuff. And then you met an expert chicken hunter? No, I met, there was a little tiny sign by the highway in the middle of nowhere that said Friars. That's it. It said Friars. And I said, oh, you have to turn on this dirt road. It says Friars. And we drove in to a Hutterite colony. And Hutterites are kind of like Amish, and they were selling these birds, but they didn't wouldn't exchange money with us, so I had to write a check for the chicken. <laughs> so they wouldn't take cash; they would take check. Right, that's no. right. That is very odd. Yeah, because yeah. typically it is the other way around. Yeah, because a he, check could be. Well, he also <laughs> sold us a gallon of milk, and we figure it was grass-fed beef because the milk had kind of a green color to it and it yeah. it tasted a little bit like fresh mown grass yeah it was good the chicken i was gonna say is that a positive, <laughs> positive it was review? it was unusual the, the chicken I, liked it I was cooking the chicken in this cabin that we had rented uh, it was a defunct forest service residence in glacier and i was cooking this um chicken it was taking forever it wasn't getting crispy you know on the top it wasn't turning brown and finally we just took it out after two and a half hours right it was falling off the bone we checked yeah. it with a fork it was totally done it just didn't have any fat on it because it was entirely like running around in the Hutterite colony. So. There was no gelatin in the pan the next morning. It just was a fatless but chicken. But the morel lean. dressing was a success. And actually, the chicken was delicious. It just wasn't what you think of a chicken tastes yeah, like. You, you ate an athlete chicken. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was great. So that's how we got into mushrooms. And since then, we've gotten into more diverse types. And we have more confidence. So we're willing to even try those that have really deadly lookalikes and things. And this year was unusual because even though we had a ton of rain and thought it would be a great foraging year, it was too cold for a lot of the mushrooms. But we did find a really unusual kind. They're anise mushrooms. I know that sounds like they taste like licorice, but they don't. They have a really unique flavor that is quite nice. But we also like candy caps that taste kind of like maple syrup. We experiment with a lot of recipes with those. Mark even made a mead with the 
candy cap mushrooms, which is really I won good. a silver medal in the largest uh, mead contest in the world. Wait, where is the largest mead contest in the world? Well, where is that held? <laughs> it's called the Mazer Cup, and it used to be in Colorado, but they got a contract to hold it at a certain brewery in Missouri. So I think for the next three years, it's going to be there. So I don't know after that if it's going to move to another location or what. Doesn't it feel like it should be in like Sweden? Or yeah, something? it the does. Largest meat yeah. festival uh-huh. in the world. Right. Yeah. Or on a hmm. boat. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, some sort of Viking craft yeah. or something. But we found that uh, in Southern California, even though it doesn't rain often, it rains enough that there are mushrooms that will come up that are edible and delicious, but sometimes they don't come every year. So it might be three or four years in between us finding mushrooms, mm-hmm. even in the same spot, just because there isn't enough rain. And the Woolsey fire really blew out a lot of the really great hunting grounds for mushrooms. It just burned, you know, basically from the valley to the coast. And when it did that, it separated into little fingers and all the little drainages, you know, and went through all those canyons and burned a lot of our hunting grounds, unfortunately. And fire, even though it's really good for morels, it isn't really good for some of the other mushrooms. It ruins the mycelium underneath if the fire's hot enough. And like here in Big Tahunga, the forest hasn't really recovered completely even in 13 years since the station fire. So mushrooms aren't back like they were like in 2005 and stuff. They're just, it's just not healed yet. Right. We found, I think the year before the station fire, we found about six different species of edible mushrooms in this area. It was at least nine or ten years before we found even one of those same species. We found a couple of others in small quantities. It's really surprising how long it takes for a forest to recover from a fire to produce whatever various things. Is that part of the fun for the two of you? That it's not a straightforward thing to find these mushrooms and that yeah, it's very particular it's about when sad. you can and cannot get them? Yeah, I think it is somewhat fun, but it's also sad to see how difficult it is for the life to recover in some I, cases. I think the, the fire was terrible. And, you know, just on my little road here, we lost 11 houses and there's only two left. But as far as mushrooms go, I think it's kind of nice because you can get super scientific. And we have gotten way more into, like, taking soil temperatures and determining moisture and understanding habitats. But it still can be that we'll take a new person that has never gone before and they'll be the first one to find a mushroom. So I like that there can be a gigantic bit of beginner's luck and that even with all the science, there's still many, many unknowns. It makes it seem a little bit mystical. Yeah, so tell me about the process. How do you you go about deciding, okay, we want to look for these types of mushrooms. Okay, we should go here, and this is what we should do to find them. There's a few different parts to it. So, For morels, for example, we know that they will come up in large numbers after a fire. I'll start with looking at where was the biggest fire, or where the largest fires within reasonable driving distance in the last year. And then we start picking some of them that have roads that go close to those fires and watch the weather. So we look at the rainfall and the daytime and nighttime temperatures until you get into the the right range. They like to grow at about 50 degrees 
Fahrenheit soil temperature. So you want the nighttime temperatures to be 40, daytime 60, or something like that, where 50 is sort of right in the middle, and that's gonna be the soil temperature. But you also have to be within a couple of weeks after a rain. We've gone to places where it seems like those conditions are perfect, except there was not rain, or it got so hot early in the season that everything just dried out really quickly. So if the daytime temperatures get up to 75, 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it's just going to dry out the soil and things won't grow. And just this week, we learned a new thing about morels, that when nighttime and daytime temperatures become closer to each other, it's more likely that there'll be morels. And that was just this week we found this out. It's Right. Th- we didn't know you could find morels in the fall, but now might be a good time to go look for them. Also, there's some really great books that are great guides. One of them is called All That the Rain Promises and More. And that's a great field guide because it's a nice small book and it has great pictures and good identifying methods. And then there's a giant book called Mushrooms Demystified, which you can go through the taxonomy to make sure that you have the right mushroom. And that's a bigger thing. One of the things that really helped us, too, is we went to one of the mushroom festivals. And in that festival, which was down at the Arboretum in Baldwin Park, they had examples, physical examples of the mushrooms For example, they had the amanita that is deadly poisonous and the amanita that is completely delicious. I think the deadly poisonous one is also completely delicious, but... You can only eat eat it once. Yeah. Yeah. Mistake you don't want to make. So you could compare the two and look at not just read a description or look at a photograph, but actually see the physical characteristics that meant this one is no and this one is yes. And that was very helpful. In Southern California, there's a couple of really delicious edible mushrooms that will occur sometimes. One is candy caps, Jane has mentioned, and the other one is the California chanterelle. It's very famous. They grow huge in California. And we just happened to find some chanterelles. Within a couple of weeks, I had the idea to use Google Maps and look at satellite photos of the color and try to match the color. And so I picked about four different places in LA County that match the color on the satellite maps and we found morale i mean we found chanterelles almost immediately which was astonishing i didn't expect it would be so successful so but you i think found a cheat yeah well, i think yeah. there was a lot of chance in that because in the following years we've not always found chanterelles in the same place every year but we have found them in the same place sometimes yeah. so i think it was just lucky that that year there were a lot of chanterelles in southern california the conditions were right Mm-hmm. The conditions have, there's so many different things that have to be right for mm-hmm. chanterelles. The nice thing about chanterelles is they're sort of bug proof. And they also, as it continues to rain, they just, instead of drying out and succumbing to worms or mold, they just keep getting bigger and bigger every time it rains. So you can find them, not quite the size of my head, but getting up there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like four dinners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, six to eight inches in diameter is not that unusual. You've decided the conditions are right, you've pinpointed the area, but this is still 
probably numerous square miles that mm-hmm. you could be foraging. Mm-hmm. Do you typically follow a trail and look along that trail? Do you go off trail? No, we follow the water. Ah. So you look for the watersheds, look for the creeks. And I think being canyoneers really helped us in that regard. Because when we were learning how to canyoneer in 2005 and 2006, we started looking at the cracks in the mountains and saying, oh, there's water that flows there. And then you notice that where the water flows, it's also greener. And so you start being able to see without even thinking about it, that there's water here, there's water there, just go where the water is. So we follow the water. And Mm -hmm. so once we found the first chanterelle, we looked in both directions, said the water came from up there and it went down there and let's look in both directions. And lo and behold, we found more. And there's also in in the Sierra, there's a number of mushrooms that don't happen as much here, like porcini which are wonderful. This year it wasn't a great year because there was still snow on the ground through mushroom season in the Sierra. But uh, last year was crazy. We were in August, we were we happened to be uh, just off the JMT on an off-trail, you know, adventure. It had rained the night before and it was really steamy hot, you know, the next day in August. And we were in this meadow right next to a creek. And we kept saying, okay, that's the last one we're picking. It doesn't matter. And then we'd go around another curve and there would just be more and more of these mushrooms. There were so many. So this was at the very end of our trip. There were so many of these mushrooms, which are incredibly delicious, that our packs were heavier as we were leaving our tri- on our trip than they were <laughs> when we started. And we actually stopped. Every time we stopped, we'd take a tarp out and cut up the mushrooms smaller and try to get them to dry out so it wasn't so heavy. Yeah. I think we were losing almost two pounds an hour of water just by spreading <laughs> the mushrooms out on the ground. Yeah. Were you putting them in your bear canister? Yes. yes you're supposed we did. to put your food in your bear canister. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we did. Yeah, we got home and then we dried them out here and now we enjoy them at home in various things. They're really good in like pasta. This is fantastic. So I don't know if you remember this about me, but mushrooms are the one thing I do not eat because I just do not like the flavor. Mm. Explain to me why I should eat them. Mm. Well, there's so much variety. (laughs) I think if you don't like the store-bought mushrooms that you normally run into, you might find some other mushrooms that you do like. So candy caps, for example. I I found mushrooms tolerable. I've Mm -hmm. yet to find one I like. Candy caps really almost have a dessert-like flavor, and the anise mushrooms I was talking about, I made cookies with shortbread cookies with them, and the flavor isn't really like a mushroom. It's like something else entirely. I mean, it's not like an agaricus mushroom that you'd buy in the store or a portobello, which is also an agaricus. Yeah, it tastes a little bit like star anise, which is a licorice-like flavor, but it's more delicate than that and more complex. It's not really like licorice, as Jane said. It's just great. And was it the candy cap that you said tastes like maple syrup? Yes. It's kind of a cross between... Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of like maple syrup and fenugreek, if you've ever tasted that. And when I made the mead from it, one of the judges that judged my mead told me, uh, and I think he's right, that it has a chocolatey character. Once he told me that and I tasted it again, I had to agree that it is kind of chocolatey too. So if you can imagine maple syrup, chocolate, fenugreek, it's a strange flavor. I like to put the dried 
candy caps in the food grinder. I sprinkle that on bacon and uh, broil the bacon with the candy cap dust. And you mm. get a really nice, it's more than a maple bacon. It's maple oh. and more. Yeah, and also, do you like crab cakes? I do like crab cakes. So yes. another mushroom that grows in Southern California, I think it grows all over the world, uh, is lion's mane, and it's a tooth fungus. So it grows like a big white beard on cut or damaged surfaces on oak trees. One of the best things to do with lion's mane is to slice it up, saute in butter, and make it into crab cakes. Without crab, just cornmeal. Like vegan crab cakes? That's right, yeah, and it's really amazing. Every time I eat it, I say, this is the best tasting mushroom in the world. It's so unusual. I'm not not so sure. Yeah, I don't don't know. I I think they're among my top five. So lion's mane, candy caps, chanterelles, morels, and... King bolis. King bolis. Yeah, those are the the five best ones, Do you have a top five also? I think mine are in there. I don't know if chanterelles (laughs) break into my top five, Mm. though, because they're super subtle... I don't know. I like harissima, which are boar's head mushrooms, probably mm. more than I like uh, chanterelles. But the, otherwise, the same. And is that because they taste like boar's head? Um, no, they look like <laughs> a boar's head. They don't taste like it. I think they look like... No, I was going to say the boar's head. Uh, no. The, the, it's the meats very, you get at the deli. It's really closely related to lion's, lion's mane. It's all yeah. another tooth fungus that looks similar, but it's more like icicles, but it's sort of branched icicles. Oh, I would put a nice... Anise. Anise mushrooms, right, yeah. I had of chanterelles, mm-hmm. yeah. too, so. All right, we'll see. The perfect world would be a world in which I eat everything that's ever put in front of me. <laughs> but mushrooms are the one thing that I can't I can't establish uh, or I can't develop a taste for. But we'll see. Maybe maybe the lion's mane and the um, candy caps would Well, next would time you come and visit or you're on a full moon hike or something with us, Maybe I'll bring um, candy cap quesadillas. I do the quesadillas because they're an easy snack food. Mushrooms are usually in a pasta or a goopy thing you can't eat while you're <laughs> hiking. And so it's hard to make recipes. So if anyone has any out there that are portable, I would love to know. I do recall the two of you bringing a fondue into a canyon one night before, and that was a mushroom fondue. That so, was probably candy caps. Because so you, yeah. you did bring goopy something yeah. before successfully. We also brought more that had been stuffed with uh, marinated meat. I think it was um, Lula Kebab. kebab. So in addition to all the mushroom foraging, you also, as we were pointing out, forage for a variety of other types of fruits and, and things. How did that come about? Was that something from throughout your life or is that something that popped up more recently once you started to live in the less developed um, wilderness of the Angeles forest? I think I've been doing it always. My mom knew a little bit about it, and we would pick a few things when I was a kid. And even I remember when I lived in Hollywood, I used to grab the fennel that pops up like in parking lots, much to like the wonderment of my bandmates, like I'd be chewing on something that I just picked in a vacant lot or something. Um, Especially more so once out here this year I experimented because we had so much rain and so many things blooming I started started ex- experimenting with things that even though they are not toxic they're not uh, known to be edible I mean they're not uh, something other people make things out of so I made sir I made some things out of ceanothus flowers 
was a really fun ex- experiment because the ceanothus that I used is the blue ones that are so beautiful. They respond differently to different pHs. So when I made like a simple sugar syrup with the ceanothus, it was aquamarine colored. When I made a vodka infusion, it was dark purple. And when I added it to some lemonade, it was pink. So it was a really fun tincture thing to do. And it added a nice floral component to things like lemonade. You know, Mm -hmm. it has the smell of ceanothus when you drink it. And that is really just a deeper, more interesting thing. So I did that. I did California Red Bud, which is a known edible. More people work with that one. I also did some non-natives that grow up here feral kind of in cabin lots like uh, lilac real lilac not california lilac which is what people call the ceanothus when they use the common name instead of the latin name i did wisteria there's a lot of wisteria that pops up here and when we were backpacking this year now there's so many new things with um, cell phones and connectivity so highly recommend the app Seek, S-E-E-K. It will tell you what a plant is and you don't even need cell service. There was a wonderful smell in this near this near Fern Lake out in the Sierras. And I said, that smells so delicious. And we looked up on Seek and it ended up being desert parsley. So we ended up picking a bunch of it and we had it with our trout tacos. Well, that's a whole nother thing, is the fishing part of this uh, discussion. So last year on our backpack, Mark caught 58 trout on our backpack. On one backpacking trip? And we ate them well, all. Well, it was a 15-day backpacking okay, trip. I mean, so. still, I mean, that's still a substantial amount. Yeah. Right. And uh, we, we go, when you go for 15 days and you don't have a resupply, that's kind of overwhelming on your back for food. You can't really do 15 days. But I have been really studying how to get the weights down and it helps to forage and to mushroom hunt and to fish and with that we can go for 15 days without resupply and be way out there somewhere let's talk about that a little bit because the tricky thing with backpacking is a lot of time you're walking the entire day so you don't really have time to forage for food so do you plan your your trips differently so that you don't have to hike as much we first of all plan only uh, an average of six to eight miles per day. We don't try to do 15 or 20 mile days. We do sometimes do a 15 or 20 mile day. It's not typical. And the other thing we do is plan off trail sections where we go to lakes above 10,000 feet where there are no trail lines on the map. Most people just don't go to those lakes. Yeah, and that takes longer too. But I remember we went... We went on this backpack with Bernd. The conditions and habitat were perfect for mushrooms in this one section. And suddenly the backpack that was supposed to be a 15-mile day turned into a six-mile day because we just said, well, we have to get these. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes we we plan in that uh, we'll be fishing. And, you know, when other people might have their head down and really just trying to get from point A to point B, we'll say, well, we got to hit these six lakes that are totally off trail. That means we have to go between them and cross the creeks and do all the things in order to visit those places. And that takes longer. And then foraging wise, except for mushrooms, I don't know if we spend so much time. We do do the gooseberries and the elderberries and the currants 
and we might take time to do those. And I always like to pick the dichondra at 12,000 feet. So it's the same species that some people have lawns of, but uh, it's very, very lemony, and it's a wonderful condiment for soup or um, trout tacos. But as far as pure calories go, it's mostly trout that we catch uh, to to supplement our diet. So we might take enough food for 10 or 11 days, but we can stay for 15. Yeah, and I always take condiments to make make the trout taste different every time. I try to go around the world, like maybe do a Cajun one, a Japanese one, a Mexican one, a, a Greek one, maybe some curry, different curries, uh, North African stuff, or just try to bring those kinds of condiments that will accommodate making trout meals. And is this campfire cooking, or are you cooking in it, a stove? It's mostly on a stove, because we're above 10,000 feet right. most of the time. Oh, and for that, we've figured out some that we can boil the trout and then debone it, save the broth, put the trout back in, and mix it with all our condiments and vegetables. Another thing, though, we do do, and this is another thing that takes more time away from actually uh, gaining miles on a backpack, is we'll specifically stop at 99.99 and make a fire. Mark has some great ways of attaching trout with little wire to sticks, and we actually roast the trout like marshmallows over a fire. So you'll stop just on the other side of the sign that says no yeah. fires That's above right. this yeah. sign. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we will plan it that way. So we'll even do sometimes, well, here we have a place we can have a fire. Let's cook lunch and then we'll cook dinner and carry it with us. And then we'll also have some of the roasted trout separated so we can have it even the next day for lunch. Things like that. So 15 days of eating trout, do you get sick of trout? I get sick of cleaning it. (laughs) I don't really get sick of eating it. The last time we came home, on our way home, we stopped so Mark could fish. We put the trout in snow, came home and shared trout the night we came home. (laughs) So you had trout when you got home. With the the guy who was watching our dog. And and then I think three nights later, we went out to dinner with someone else and Mark had trout. (laughs) So... Um, I'm not really a fish person, but fresh Sierra trout is a different thing. And also just, you know, figuring out how to do it. You know, you're also on a backpack, so there are things you give up. You know, you don't eat. We're not eating ice. Well, we do have freeze-dried ice cream. Oh, we have a freeze dryer now, too. That's that's been a game changer. We're gonna we're about to do this backwards way. So typically what ends up happening is we start out in people's childhood and then see how they've become the people they are now. But we kind of skipped all that and discussed your lives now. So let's rewind and talk a little bit about how you both individually grew up and whether you grew up with the kind of lifestyle you currently live in, and if not, how you became the people that adopted this lifestyle. I grew up in a place called Suburbia Heights in Buena Park, California. Is that really the name? Yeah. It sounded like you were about to make a joke. (laughs) And it was very suburban, but not necessarily as high class when you close your eyes and think of suburbia. Oh, I don't think of suburbia as high class at all. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But maybe that's because I grew up in suburbia in the South. (laughs) (laughs) So my dad was a very kind of stiff personality, but then he went on a boy scouting trip with my two brothers and 
the men who were also on that, the fathers of other boys who were on that particular trip, they were a wonderful group of men. And my dad just had such a great time with them. He started going on all the Boy Scout adventures. And then he had this idea that he wanted to just go on adventures with our family and began taking us on backpacking trips. My first backpacking trip was uh, at the Mexican border and coming up on the PCT. Oh, okay. So this is that 500-mile PCT trip? Well, we did section hikes of it. But then we would do that all, all during the year, like on different long weekends, you know, spring break or those kinds of things. In the summer, we would always do a Sierra backpack as a family. And that would be longer. I really liked backpacking. I'm the youngest of five, and we're all really close in age. And so I didn't get a lot of parent time. Uh, but when we went backpacking, because I loved it the most, it often ended up being just my dad and I. So I got a lot of good, you know, dad time uh, doing that. And it was one of my favorite things to do. I think what's very interesting is that your story is a Boy Scout story, but not because you were a member of the Boy Scouts. I actually did become a member of the Boy oh, Scouts. Oh, you did? In, and it was a hard push. There was a Explorer Post, which is the older Boy Scouts, 14 and older. And there was an Explorer Post 450 that was backpacking explorers. And this was like my salvation. I w- there was finally like a group that was going backpacking often, but there was a lot of pushback from the parents to have a girl. And we had a couple of community meetings about it, but eventually there was a really great scoutmaster and he said, look, I know this girl and she can handle any of this stuff and it'd be a pleasure to have her along. And that was really what got me to be able to join. I don't think I ever was allowed to join officially, but I was able to go on all the backpacking trips. I did this same thing over and over again in a lot of things where I was the only girl. I played water polo in high school. I was the only girl on the team, one of two in the entire league. Uh, I also had to push to have access to the weight room. Uh, There were a lot of school board meetings about it. And (laughs) (laughs) eventually... I was what a able funny world we live in. <laughs> I was able to bring in I went to the library and read up on Title IX. The Title IX was brand new legislation and it required that they allow me to use the weight room. If they didn't have a separate weight room for women, they had to allow me to use the one for men. So that was another And at what point of your life was this? That was when I was a freshman in high school. So this was, was the high school weight room. Yeah, I had a lot of experiences like that. But back to the other thing, the the lifestyle that I lead, I think it was, I've always really liked nature. Even before we started backpacking, when I was little, my mom grew up on a farm and always took us outside. I think the best thing you could be as a little kid to my mom was an observant little kid. So the winning prize of anything would be the first one to spot the wild animal, you know, on a trip or... I saw a pronghorn, you know, or something. You'd be able to win the prize. So all of that was definitely in my family. And I grew up here in Southern California. And we did go. There are spots like Little Jimmy Campground. I remember going to Little Jimmy Campground when I was a little kid or San Jacinto when I was a little kid or San Gregonio, all those places visited often. So. And did you end up living in Hollywood for that time just because of work? Yeah, I lived. Are those the dark days of your life? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Hollywood wasn't too bad just before that when I lived in Beverly Hills adjacent would be a dark time <laughs> because I didn't hike uh, during that time. You I didn't would, go to Runyon Canyon? I didn't. Uh, I was so buried in my own ambition. I was trying so hard at work that I never went. And one day I had to deliver some music to, this is before the, um, you could send the files over the internet for a film and the director lived in a house overlooking Franklin Canyon Park and he was right at the end of Franklin Canyon Park so uh, when I went to his house I stood on his deck and saw Franklin Canyon Park and I canceled all my meetings that day and just went for a hike <laughs> and I'd never looked back <laughs> all right Mark it's your turn what's the, what were the secrets of your childhood Well, I grew up in Rochester, Michigan, which is about half an hour north of Detroit. And now it is one of the fanciest, expensive places to live in that area. But at the time, it was sort of at the edge between the suburban part of Detroit and farmland. There were open fields. Um, One of the first houses we lived in, there was an open field out of our backyard. I could just go over to this pond and I would catch frogs. And across the street, there was a a barn where Bob Seger and his band at the time were rehearsing and living. And then we moved to another house that was even further out in the country and there were cornfields and wheat fields around us. And I was just outdoors all the time mostly catching frogs. I probably could have found morels at the time, but I didn't know anything about them. Um, Skating on the pond when it would freeze in the winter. And then when I moved out here to Los Angeles, it was for work. I was so used to this rural lifestyle that eventually when I could afford a house, I bought a house with a big yard and I started growing a garden, which is something we always did. I had fallen in love with woodworking in college, so I started collecting logs and cutting up wood and making things. I found a junior high school that had adult classes with a really nice wood shop so I could continue woodworking without having to buy my own tools. At some point, I was talking to my sister on the phone, and she says, it sounds like you've kind of recreated the farmhouse experience (laughs) in Michigan out there in Los Angeles, and I realized she was right. Up to that point, it was sort of subconscious. I was just doing what I like to do, but then I realized I really do like these things uh, about a rural lifestyle, and I kind of embraced that and became more and more kind of a nature boy, started volunteering with tree people and going out camping in the forest and planting trees. Eventually, when I met Jane and started spending more time out here in the forest with her, we kind of got into canyoneering just because this turned out to be the epicenter of some of the best canyons in L.A. County. We just got more and more into wilderness adventure things. And I think it was actually Jane who got me interested in wild berries. I had never really considered it to be something I was interested in, but uh, she found an article about how to make a version of cider using manzanita berries. I thought that's interesting. So a couple years later, we happened upon a little grove of manzanita trees or bushes and started collecting the berries and trying to make beverages with it. Uh, And it was around that same time that I also started keeping bees again. So I I learned in high school how to keep bees. Uh, That was a funny experience too. My father was a lawyer, but some of the clients were 
rural uh, people, either farmers or whatever, and didn't have sometimes the cash they needed to help pay for whatever help they needed. So they would, he would barter with them. So one of his clients bartered teaching me and my dad how to be beekeepers. That is a very interesting bartering Yeah, isn't situation. that weird? Yeah, so he set us up with the first beehive and I was a beekeeper through high school. It's not something I talked about with people at the time, but it's something we would always, for a few years, be giving honey away at Christmas time. So I didn't do that for many years, but then around the year 2000, a swarm of bees came to my house and they <laughs> were hanging the, on as a tree. They do. Right, and they I had a friend who yeah. said, oh, I have the secret fantasy of becoming a beekeeper. And I said, well, <laughs> guess what? I know how to do it. And so we caught these bees and put them in a box and uh, she and I kept bees for a few years, and um, we just shared the, the honey 50-50. I should have called you when we had a big swarm of bees come into the tree in our backyard. You could have had an additional hive. Yeah. Well, this year was an interesting year. Last year, I caught, well, last year and this year together, I caught something like six swarms of bees. It's something you can actually plan for. You can hang boxes in tree branches and catch swarms intentionally. Usually it's around April, May and you bait them with a little bit of honeycomb and lemongrass oil. Bees really love lemongrass oil. And so you hang these boxes in the trees and and a swarm of bees will come. This is how they reproduce. Uh, They will come and say, oh, there's a hollow tree, let's live there. Well, that hollow tree happens to be my box. And so I just lowered the, the box down to the ground and I put them in a wooden box that's a traditional beehive and then you have another beehive. So I caught something like six uh, swarms of bees in the last year, but then this year and last year, bears ate six of my beehives. So I lost as many as I gained, which that's kind of sad, but I guess hey, the, but bee, at least the bear benefited. At least that's some happy bears. Yeah. <laughs> but when a bear eats your beehive, they will eat everything. All the bees, all the larvae, all the honey, all the pollen, it's just gone. Anyway, oh, so I was talking about that because the berries and the honey, I started getting into mead making. I make mead all the time, and it's one of my biggest passions in life. So I became a mead judge in 2020. Just around the time the COVID hit, I became a certified mead judge, and I was paranoid that I would get COVID and lose my sense of smell and taste, and I would never be able to be a good mead maker or a judge again in my life. So, but that hasn't happened. <laughs> I have to say that is the first time I've ever heard of that as a deep-seated fear. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to I want to I want to go back to two things you mentioned. So first, Tree People. Tell people what Tree People is. So Tree People is a nonprofit organization which has been around for 50 years now. Um, Andy Lipkus was a teenager 50 years ago, and he started the organization to uh, start regreening parts of LA. And in the run-up to the 1980 Olympics, they got a big boost, and they planted a million trees, I think the year before the Olympics. And I think it was 1988 or something that I first heard about tree people and started volunteering. I did a lot of urban plantings, but I also really fell in love with the forest plantings. So they are a in a private-public partnership with the Forest Service do mountain plantings with several of the different forests in the Southern California area. 
Los Padres, uh, San Bernardino, and the Los Angel- Angeles National Forest. And it's only a California thing? or is there... It's a local group, right. And so another thing, in addition to planting trees, Tree People has been on the forefront of advocating for responsible capture of the rainwater that falls. So I first heard about this, I think, 30 years ago. Andy Lipkis and other people at Tree People were talking about the fact that um, we could save more than a billion dollars if we could capture the rainwater that falls in L.A. County and use it to replenish the groundwater and not have to import it from Owens Valley and other places. So uh, they're really big in advocating for capturing rainwater and not just letting it carry the trash to the ocean, which is what happens in a lot of cases. And then the other thing I wanted to go back to, and this definitely covers both of you, is you've both mentioned canyoneering. You've mentioned people like Matt Maxon. So canyoneering in this area is kind of, it went through this huge growth about 2012, around about where there were just tons of people coming uh, with the birth of Uber adventures and just doing canyons like crazy. But prior to that, there were a few groups of people that were kind of establishing a lot of the canyons in the area. Did you guys fall into that camp? Or were you in between the two? Like, how did we, you come we about? We started in 2005. We took a class. and I didn't think the, cl- the class was really fun, but I didn't think it prepared us to necessarily be canyoneers but we thought was we, the class with rich carlson or no, was it with ats uh, or ats ats okay. yeah and then it taught us how to be safe but it didn't teach us how to create anchors right okay. yeah so we didn't know how to create anchors and some of the knots were things that we didn't know so yeah. we started finding people that were experienced mm-hmm. to go with. and we we thought uh that that would be hard but we ended up running into two guys who really wanted to do canyons often and they were just two guys and didn't think it was safe to go as two people thought it would be more safe with at least three with us two it would be four and we started going with them and that was uh ken king and a shed boot Butel. we also met through them a lot of other local people like uh paul chin and suzanne tanaka and we would end up going on canyons. And Sonny Lawrence. And, and Sonny Callius. Lawrence and Callius. And mm-hmm. we we ended up getting into it at a certain point where we started doing first descents, wanting to do first descents. I think the first first descent we did, uh, I had just had my eyes on a canyon where I'd seen the waterfall. It was really voluminous, but I couldn't get there because it, it was... 2004 and 5 was really wet. It was impossible to cross Big Tonga Creek, so we couldn't get to that. And finally, I jumped a fence over at the dam and was able to get on the other side of the river to uh, this one waterfall. And I took Mark and Ken King and and Ashed. I think, there were a couple other people. I, yeah. I can't I, it might have been the brothers, the father and son. I'm trying to think their name. I don't think it was. Uh, it was um, and we uh, ended up uh, doing Mary Jane Canyon as a first ascent. And we called it that because I was the real pusher to get everybody to go. So that's part of the Jane. But we also found an illegal pot grow. So we named it Mary Jane. It's also notorious for um, poison, poison oak. oak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just happened that year, everybody wanted to have a, um, rendezvous. a rendezvous 
which had never happened here as far as we know. So we happened to be within walking distance of eight canyons. So people would just come to our house and park here and we would walk mm, to right. this or that place and mm. sort of cut the poison oak and put anchors in in pr- preparation for that um, rendezvous. And that summer we also met, or that spring, we also met uh, Chris Brennan, who had the best website uh, at the time right. he, for canyons. In certain ways, like the grandfather of the canyons yeah. in the region because he mm-hmm. was the one who was establishing and sharing yes. with everybody. Yeah. We mm-hmm. went on Dan our, Cat. Yeah. our second canyon ever with Chris. Yeah, we did Rubio with him. And then we started going on more things with him, too, and we ended up doing a number of canyons for the first time, like West Vasquez, Silver on the Side, first descents um i did buckhorn first descent even this year we did a couple of funny little ones we did food the fusiers mm. i remember when we did the first time we did fusier mark and i were just looking at it because that's such an a unique canyon because the lower section there's a tunnel under the road and you walk through the tunnel to the a 60-foot waterfall right at the end of the tunnel. We were just looking at it, but we had our harnesses in the car, so we went back and and got our harnesses, and we set up and went down it. Mark did the second rappel first, and at the bottom he screamed, and I couldn't see him at all, and I wondered, I asked him, are you okay? I said, what's happened? He said, I'm fine, you'll find out. (laughs) 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 And I, I went down, and... The water was over my head, and it was February, so it was, it was really cold. It was really cold, yeah. and I think the most fun on on that canyon was crossing the Big Tahunga River. Afterward, we found an amazing swimming hole with just I don't know. You you thought it was eighteen. It, it's, feet. it's really deep. We went back later in June or July with a, another couple of friends, and we spent time going in that swimming hole. And at one point, I went down as far as I could. And I held a stick up over my head. Once I touched the bottom, you could see which part of the stick was wet and which was dry. And so we figured out it was about 12 feet deep. Just some fun places. We really enjoyed canyoneering, enjoyed finding new places especially. And then and we started meeting more and more friends. We met Baron Haas and Claudia Schley and Matt Maxson. And that's how I met Johanna Turner, Sarah Moretz, eventually Taco, Ryan Dacey. And a number of other you, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Alden uh, Anderson, too, yeah. Alden. And speaking of Alden Anderson, I just want to point out if he's listening, that Jane said Fusier, not Fusier, for the name of the canyon. <laughs> I this was, is an argument he and I have had in the past. I always thought it was a French word and should be pronounced Fusier. Yeah, same. Only Alden Anderson thinks it's pronounced fusion. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. When we first heard about Alden Anderson, we saw him posting in the Southern California Canyoneering Facebook page about doing night canyons. And I thought, these people are crazy. <laughs> what are they doing canyons at night for? And so we called some of our friends to find out, is this, is this guy safe or is he of a death wish? <laughs> And, and they said, oh, no, he's totally fine. He's very safe. And so we actually went on one of his night canyons, and that's how we met Alden. And he is very safe. So we had fun. I took Alden on a, a little trip two miles away from here near Delta Canyon. There's um, some places. He had his 
eyeball on this waterfall and we had looked at it too <laughs> and uh, wondered about it and so I took him up on the offer to go explore it. So you just kind of go up from Delta Canyon up this ridge and down and you come out uh, a little bit downstream, about a quarter mile downstream. It was exciting. Yeah, I just want to point out for people listening. So if you ever hear about some little young upstart in your area doing something that you think might be dumb, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you'll go establish new waterfalls together in the future after you find <laughs> out that you're that he's an okay person. So I think we're getting to the part where we're going to have to wrap this up. Partly because we've been going for a while, partly because it's pitch dark and we can't see each other anymore, <laughs> and the danger of getting hit by acorns is, is escalating. <laughs> but before we do go, what I always do at the end of the show is have everyone leave the audience with a final thought and you and this is individually you can't cheat and join forces on this so who wants to go first i like the title of your podcast <laughs> that's your final thought and i think that people should follow its instruction what is the title <laughs> <laughs> it's go get outside and yeah. go is an acronym for get outside mm. it's yeah. funny that you say you like the title because it's an accident that it's called that I was just calling it Get Outside when it was a video series initially as a placeholder till I came up with a better name. And I created a folder on my computer and I put G-O, you know, for Get Outside. And then I realized, oh yeah, that, that's, that's the word go. And then for whatever reason, I decided to use the acronym and then the Get Outside part afterwards. And I never came up with a better name. And so it just stuck. Oh, I think it's great, and I think you should do it. Everyone should go get outside. All right, Mark, now you have to come up with your own. Well, I think there are a lot of great places in the Angeles National Forest, but a lot of people don't know about them. So get a hold of a map. Maybe better to get a hold of a map that's 40 years old. Check out some of those trails that are on the map that might not show up in some of the more modern maps. Uh, there are a number of people that we know who have been working on these trails that haven't been maintained for 20 or 30 years, and they're getting fixed. Uh, things like Gold Canyon Trail, Fall Creek Trail. What are some of the others? McKinley Peak Trail. Yeah. So we know a bunch of people that are working on these trails. And um, you can also get out there and do some of that yourself. Just help work on these trails. With this push to make the rest of the forest into a monument, more and more people are going to come here. And I think the only way that the forest is going to hold more people is if we fix all those trails. All right. And I would say on top of those things is... If you do live in the Los Angeles area or you're thinking about visiting the Los Angeles area, it's way more than just Hollywood and the city. There is this amazing wilderness area directly to the north of the entire city. And then if you are not in those areas, this is also still good advice to go get outside wherever you are and also explore the mountains and places where you are. So thank you for letting me come hang out and thank you for the gooseberry quesadillas and the and the various sodas and, and other homemade drinks. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Well, it was fun. Thank you. So before I close out the show, I have a note here from Mark. 
about that body recovery that they were part of in Vasquez Creek. And this helps illustrate why trail work and trail maintenance can be so important and why it can save lives. So here we go. Here is an addendum from Mark Fitzsimmons. I realized after the interview that in my mind, there is a clear line between trail work and saving lives, which may not be obvious to the listener. After we found the hiker near Grizzly Flat, we went back up there to find out where he might have gotten lost. And what we found was that the trail was in really good shape from Dark Canyon Saddle down into Grizzly Flat. But at one point, a dead tree had fallen across the road, and this led him directly toward Vasquez Creek. And when he got to the creek, there was also a cairn that canyoneers use, unfortunately, to tell them where they start repelling. He went in and he never came out. So we moved that dead tree and we put up some signs. We also wrote letters to the Forest Service alerting them to this situation. They made that trail a priority for National Trails Day the next year. And we had something like 200 volunteers out here and made that trail pristine again. But I will add that in 2023, there was so much rain and growth and even snow that the brush became impassable again. And even though we cut material for a good two miles, that trail still needs a good deal of work. So I recommend if uh, you're going to go hiking and you think a trail might be in good shape, but uh, you don't have recent information, it's not a bad idea to carry a, a lightweight handsaw or pair of loppers when you go. And now it's that part of the show where I invite you all to go to our website, gogetoutside.com, where you can find photographs and links to all of the things we talked about in today's show. Just look for episode 113 with Jane Fontana and Mark Fitzsimmons in the podcast section. And while you are there, why not take a look at our previous bonus episode, the first episode of Hometown Explorers made in conjunction with Wonder Outside and Ranger Ted. If you're looking for exciting things to do near South Orange, New Jersey, then you are in luck because that is the focus of that episode. Go take a look. Let us know what you thought. Hopefully we will make many, many more episodes of Hometown Explorers. And if you would like to get in touch with us here at the show, there are a number of ways to do that. You can send us an email, jason at gogetoutside.com, or send us a text or leave a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And as always, please go to your podcast purveyor of choice, subscribe, rate, review the show, but most importantly, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. Next time on the show, come back March 1st for Lincoln Stoller, climber, mountaineer, physicist, therapist. He and I delve into the psychology of climbers and also discuss the American Alpine Club's Climbers Grief Fund. March 1st, Lincoln Stoller, See you then.